Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20 as we make our way toward the end of the Gospel of John. We're looking at the stories that John records for us around the cross, the stories that John records for us around the cross. We've seen the story of Peter, of Pilate, and today we look at the story of Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene. As we begin, I want to ask you a question, and, and that question is this, what is the value What is the value of a human life? How do you measure the value of a life? Very often, we tend to measure the value of a life by what that life accomplishes, by by victories won, by uh, defeats suffered, by things acquired, by things done with that life, whether those things are good or whether those things are bad. We tend to measure ourselves in the very same way ways. Few of us, if we're honest, uh, accomplish everything we thought we would accomplish with our lives. All of us have done things that we remember, things that we've done that were good, but we've also memories of things done that were just, well, wrong. And those things, those things that we've done tend to live with us. Those things that we've done that were wrong tend to show up more often than not in our Memories. How many of you have had uh, have learned that lesson from life? The negative is the most obvious. The positive you forget. Yeah, every single time. So those negative things tend to live with us. They tend to show up in our memories. Our pasts tend very easily to press into our present, and often don't leave us alone. I like the way that uh, Charles Dickens describes it in A Christmas Story, where he puts in the words of Marley, the ghost. Do you remember where he says, Marley appears and uh, uh, Marley makes this statement. He has him say, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link, yard by yard, every Poor decision, every bad decision became a link to a link to a link to a link so that he eventually found himself at the end of his life wrapped in a chain he had made. And that chain very often is a chain that uh, we can uh, sometimes ignore, but very often we're aware of it, even if it can't be seen, we're aware of it in in the shame and the guilt that that chain actually brings to our lives. Mary of Magdala knew a little bit about shame and guilt. She knew a little bit about what it was to have a chain she had built for herself. The uh, Gospels don't give us a lot of information on Mary's life before she met Jesus, but what they do tell us very simply is incredibly powerful. Matthew and Luke both tell us that from Mary, Jesus, or out of Mary, Jesus casts not one demon, not two demons, not five demons, but seven demons. And if you understand the way the Jews understood numbers and numerology, seven for them was always 
uh, 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 significant for perfection. So what we're given as a picture of Mary before Christ, uh, a woman with seven demons, you could say she was a perfect mess. Mary was a perfect mess. Spiritually, she was under the control of the evil one. Mentally, physically, she was incredibly broken. And so Mary was a woman who knew something of what it was like to have chains she could not get rid of. She understood the weight and the burden of shame and guilt. Guilt and shame forged from her past. And you can just imagine, if you will, for, uh, for a moment, what her life must have been like before she came to Christ. Uh, being in that condition, you can imagine the comments. You can imagine the whispers. You can imagine the condemning looks. Because of her condition, because of her massive, massive brokenness, she was treated by others as an outcast, as unclean, unworthy. She was unwanted. And she was uncomfortable in the condition that she was in. She could not get out of the condition she was in. And uncomfortable as she was, she was never comforted by anyone else. Her life was never considered to be of any great value. That God would, or, or that God could break her shame, break her chains, was something that Mary probably believed he could do, but it would also have been something that she would not have believed he would do for her. That what had happened to her, what she had done with her life, the choices she had made with her life, all rested on her and would not be taken from her. She couldn't escape her past. A lot of people in this room right now, you feel exactly the same way. You may not mention it. You may not talk about it. You may act like you have no change. You may, may act like you don't feel the weight of guilt or shame, but there are people in this room who understand very clearly the burden of a yesterday that will not let go of today. You're doing fine. You're, you're, you're managing. You're, you're working. You're raising kids, you're going to school, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then there is some kind of something that happens and suddenly you're reminded of something from the past. The guilt comes and inevitably the shame. The past keeps marking the present. This chain that Mary had made in her life link by link with poor choices and wrong deeds, she just thought she was gonna have to bear all the rest of her life. Mary couldn't hide them. She knew she had them. And there she was. Now, we don't know when or how Mary actually came to hear about Jesus, came to know Jesus. We don't know how she came to encounter him exactly, how she first heard about Jesus, his good news of a kingdom and of a new king and of a new king who would bring a new life and all those things. 
But we do know that when she met Jesus, she began to find healing. Part of her story is that she began to have a new identity, a new life's direction. She began to experience a new condition. All those things, all of those things, her identity, her direction, and her condition began to change. She was less and less Mary the mess and more and more Mary the miracle. And she became a noted, devoted follower of Jesus. And we see her begin to really live as the gospels tell the story of Jesus and reflect on her. We see her being blessed and, and, and released from a life that really wasn't living. We see the, the chains starting to fall. Our passage for the morning shows the climax of Mary's life, and I want you to look at it with me from one particular perspective. I want you to see how it is that Jesus broke the chain that Mary wore. Now, in John 19... Because of what Jesus had already done for her, we aren't too surprised in that chapter to find that, that when the innocent Jesus is betrayed and arrested and falsely accused and hauled in before Pilate and exchanged for Barabbas and condemned to death and then cru crucified, Mary is there. And this is important. Mary is there. It's, it's curious, but the men who had walked with Jesus the longest, only one of them stayed around. Everybody else fled. Mary was there. Mary was there. Mary was there. There was nothing she could do, but Mary was there. All she could do was wait, and she waited with, with uh, Jesus' mother there at the cross. Mary was there. She watches Jesus suffer. She hears him cry out. She sees him die. But even after Jesus has died, Mary remains John records that afterward, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they secure Jesus' body. They, they uh, take it to a new garden tomb nearby. The two men try to ensure that Jesus gets a proper burial. They're hurrying because the Sabbath is coming and they're not permitted to work. So they're gathered as many spices as they could gather. They got as many linens as they could gather and they did as much as they could for Jesus. But then suddenly the, the uh, evening starts to dawn and they have to quit and they go and Mary somehow knows this and makes it her goal to finish up what the, the two men have started. She waits again for Sunday to come. And when it does, she's ready. At dawn, she and several women head out to the tomb with more spices but what they find is not what they expect. And so John tells us, and this is where we pick up our passage, John chapter 20, verse one. John tells us that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, the writer, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. Now, I want you to notice with me that Mary's not thinking of resurrection. She's thinking of theft. Somebody stole the body. So Peter, verse 3, went out with the other disciple, and they were going, going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon then, verse 6, came and following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the place where the body should be and the face cloth where 
uh, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw, he basically saw what Peter saw and he believed. He believed God had done something. He didn't know what, he didn't know why, but he knew God had done something. Verse nine, why did he not believe more than that? Well, they didn't understand, John says, verse nine, the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary, verse 11, Mary stays, Mary stays. But Mary stood weeping, literally wailing at the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and the most extraordinary thing happens. And she saw, verse 12, two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but didn't know or realize that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell him where, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 17 says, Jesus said to her, don't cling to me for I have not ascended to the father but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Verse 18 says, Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Now I want you to pause with me and, and uh, consider what's happening here. It is a, uh, a powerful, powerful moment around the resurrection but very, very telling. I want you to notice with me, first of all, that it's Mary of Magdala, not Peter, not John, that the angels appear to. The angels did not appear to Peter and John when they went in the tomb. They go in, they explore, they leave. Mary remains, she peers in, there are the angels. They don't appear to Peter or James who were in Jesus' inner circle, they appear to Mary. Why? I want you to notice with me that it's not Peter and it's, or, or John who experiences the first and most profound moment with the resurrected Jesus. Not Peter, not John, Mary. Why? Mary's not in the inner circle. She's not an apostle. And yet, Angels appear to her, Jesus himself comes to her and comes to her first. Why, why, why Mary? I think there's something very important going on here that we need to see. Jesus wants to show through Mary just what his death and his resurrection actually mean, what, that, what, it, what they actually mean for her in all of her brokenness, what they mean for her in all of her brokenness and for us in all of ours, especially he wants to show her what it means for the past, for those chains, for the guilt, for the shame. 
So here, Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion and resurrection are, are all complete. And what happens in verses 16 and 17 becomes really, really significant for Mary and for you and me. And this is going to be our focus this morning. I want you to see with me Jesus showing Mary in these verses here the meaning of the resurrection for her past as something to let go of. Now, notice this. When Mary sees the resurrected Jesus, we're not told exactly what she does, but we know from verse 16 to verse 17 that with her declaration, teacher, Rabboni, she must have also had a demonstration because Jesus immediately in verse 17 says, don't touch me because I haven't ascended. And so the picture we have is of Mary uh, absolutely astounded. The, the poor woman has gone through a roller coaster of emotions. She has seen Jesus crucified, seen him die. She comes to his tomb. His tomb is empty. She feels absolutely defeated for more reasons than we might know immediately. We're going to unpack that. But then suddenly, 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 Jesus appears. She sees angels. That would be shocking enough. But then Jesus shows up and all she can do, all she wants to do, and you can imagine her falling down on her knees and just reaching out to take hold of this Jesus she thought she had lost. Powerful picture of joy. Mary, overjoyed, falling down, both arms reached out to grab the resurrected Jesus, just yearning to touch him. But then the, the oddest thing, look at verse 17. Jesus says to her, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, honestly, bluntly, this is not what we expect from Jesus. Here is the overjoyed Mary falling down, this faithful Mary who has stood by the cross, stood by his mother, all of these things, falling down, arms stretched out. The Jesus in our heads is going to go, oh, Mary, and gather her up. It's not what he does. And this is a little troubling, don't you think? But <laughs> Mary with her arms outstretched. What in the world is Jesus doing? Why in the world does he say, don't touch me? Don't cling to me. Is he pushing her away? Is this Jesus who was once so close now untouchable? Is he standoffish? Has his personal care changed for Mary? What do we see here? And you can only imagine that she was wondering the same thing. She's witnessed his death, sees his entry tomb. He appears, her emotions are here, and suddenly he's saying, don't touch me. Back down again. Why? What's happening here? What is Mary reaching for, really and truly, and what is Jesus saying? Maybe the best way to understand what's happening in this moment is to set it in the larger context of who Mary is and who we are. If you start back at the beginning, let's understand this. Shame has plagued all of us since Adam and Eve disobeyed God's one directive regarding the forbidden tree and the forbidden fruit. 
They eat the fruit. They realize they're naked. Their first instinct is to hide from each other and to hide from God, Genesis 3 tells us. And it's no wonder because now suddenly they stand guilty before God. Suddenly they're vulnerable to each other. They make clothes for themselves. They realize now suddenly they're sinful and weak and damaged. They're living in what was never to this point a dangerous world, a world that now seems to be very dangerous. They find themselves living under God's judgment. They're exposed to each other's sinful judgment and rejection for the first time. I mean, uh, Adam is throwing Eve under the bus. Eve's throwing the serpent under the bus. Everybody's doing some blaming and shifting. Anybody ever experienced that? Of course, you did it this morning on your way to church. Well, you're late. Well, it's your fault. Yeah. You didn't put the toothpaste back. Well, and so they hide. And everyone since living in this dangerous world has had the same instinct to hide themselves. The kind of shame that we experience from the wrong things we've done is, is a powerful combination of failure and pride when we fail morally, when we sin, we're shamed. When we fail due to our limitations and we show a weakness and we're not able to do what someone else can do or we're not able to, to follow through like we intended to follow through, we're shamed. When we fail to live up to other people's expectations of us, we are ashamed. And because now we're so full of pride, that combination of failure and pride means that we're ashamed of our failures and weaknesses and we'll go to almost any length to hide them from others. And this means that shame has a great power it exercises over us. Shame controls significant parts of our lives. It consumes energy and time as we're always trying to hide the guilt we feel and the shame we have. It often focuses us on what we aren't and what we have done but can't fix. It often shuts us down. Tragically, the past we cannot overcome becomes a force that causes us to miss and waste the present we have because we're always hiding. We hide and cover up our guilt and our shame with isolation and with overwork, we hide behind screens and phones and earphones and Netflix and ESPN and ESPN and ESPN. We hide behind our careers and our houses and our cars and our vacations. We hide behind alcohol and drugs. We hide, we hide behind busyness and procrastination, pretense and pretending. We hide with lies and deceptions. We use whatever we can to cover our guilt and to hide our shame. But here's the thing the Bible teaches us. Just because pride moves us to hide our guilt and our shame doesn't mean that the desire to hide it is actually entirely wrong. Being rid of our guilt and shame, wanting to be rid of it, wanting to be done with it, is not actually entirely wrong in, in Indeed, we, we need a place to hide it, to be done with it. We need the right place, though. 
Which brings us back to Mary. You see, what I think is happening here, it's not just that Mary liked Jesus and it was amazing to be around him. I'm sure it was. But what Mary found in Jesus was her hiding place. What Mary found in Jesus was someone who could take away her guilt. Who being near him helped deal with her shame. Just being with Jesus, just traveling with Jesus. She was no longer Mary the mess. She was Mary the disciple. I mean, she, she, was, she was doing something positive, something making a difference with her life, something she never thought she could ever do. Mary, when she found Jesus, found the only safe place to hide on when she heard his good news of new life and a new kingdom with a new king. Mary had a decisive moment where she stopped hiding her shame in the wrong ways and wrong place and found a place to hide it in Jesus and start over. So there's a whole lot more going on here when Mary goes, Rabbi, falls on her knees and reaches out to embrace him. She thought she'd lost him. She thought she'd lost her hiding place. She thought she'd lost her refuge, her solution for her guilt and her shame. And all she wants to do is wrap her arms around him and hold on and never let him go. Why? Because of the power that guilt and shame have in brain. Now, in verse 17, Jesus commands her not to do it, and it appears to be a sharp rebuke, but it really isn't. Jesus isn't being rude here. He's he offers an explanation. He says, I'm returning to, to heaven and to my father. Now, Mary, no doubt, is, is thinking, okay, good. Now everything's going to be as it was before the cross. But in telling her not to hold on to him, Jesus is making the point that things have changed. A new present has come. A new future is coming. Nothing will be as it was, but it's all going to be better. This cross has dealt finally and fully with sin and guilt. Her, his resurrection brings a new life and it brings an end to shame. And he's standing before her because he is still her refuge, but an even better refuge than he, she had before. She just hasn't fully understood it yet. And his return to her now, his appearance to her now, And his return to his father are of, a, are of a piece. He's making a point. He's coming to her and he'll be coming to his disciples to let them know that he's leaving, but he's not leaving. As he's told them before, his physical presence is going to be replaced by his spiritual presence through the Holy Spirit. 
who was to come and who will come and dwell in them, which is incredibly good news. Mary has not put it all together, but Jesus will make it clear before he goes. But here's the point. Mary can't hold on to him as she once did. She can't be with him physically as she once was. But this doesn't mean she's lost her place to hide. What Mary really wants back in the garden is Jesus as he was. What Jesus is offering to her is an even better place to hide her guilt and shame. Mary is fixed on her past, fixed on her chain, her guilt, her shame. She's fixed on yesterday's problem of a dead Jesus, but Jesus is pointing her to see that the new has come with his resurrection. Rather than being abandoned by him or put at a distance from him, the resurrected Jesus is going to be closer, more intimate than before. By way of the Holy Spirit, he's going to give her life. He's going to lead her in the present for the future. He's going to free her from her past. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And so Jesus shows her that because he died for her and because he lives with her and will live in her by the Spirit. Her past is something she can let go of. And that includes her pain, and that includes her shame, and that includes her regret. When Jesus goes on and tells her, go to my brothers and say, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God, he's making it clear that he has more for Mary to be and to do. He says in the most phenomenal way, and this is hard for us as moderns to understand, men never sent women on any important mission because men believed in that day women were absolutely unreliable. Jesus is turning it all on its head. If you were going to pick a woman to go and, and, and tell the disciples, be the very first to share the good news that Jesus had risen, the, the last woman of all the failed women, you ladies, please forgive me, um, of all the failed women that you would have picked would have been Mary. And so we have this extraordinarily beautiful picture where Jesus says, don't touch me. Things have changed. Now, Mary, I want you to do something for me. I'm not asking Peter to do this. I'm not asking James to do this. I'm not asking John to do this. I'm not asking an apostle to do this. Mary, I'm asking you to do this. I'm giving you the high privilege of going to announce that I have been raised. I live. I trust you with that, Mary. Go on and do it. I have more and I have better for you to be And you can only begin to imagine how Mary must have felt. Mary, your past hasn't finished you. I'm just getting started with you. And that is what Mary so desperately needed to hear Jesus.
And I suspect that is something that there are people in this room very desperately need to hear Jesus say as well. Your past hasn't finished you. I'm just getting started with you. Loved ones, I want to say this to you. There's only one place to hide that offers the protection that all of us seek. All of us know what it is to be guilty, to be ashamed. All of us know what it is to hide it. Some of us are hiding some stuff right now. Only we know. Others of us, in fact, almost all of us know what it's like to be living your life and to have that experience of the past show up in your mind, in your memory, and to have the shame come with it. There's only one place to hide that offers the protection we seek, a place where guilt and shame can really truly be covered. Jesus' death and his resurrection are the only remedy for the guilt we have and the shame we feel over our failures. There's literally nowhere else to go with those things. You can try to outwork it, it will catch you. You, will try, you can try to outplay it, it will catch you. You can try large doses of pleasure, shame will still show up. The defeat you will feel cannot be undone by more things, new things, different things, better things. You can't. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other way to be made right. There's no other way to be made whole. There's no other way to be set free. If we hide in Jesus, if we go to Jesus, if we hide in Jesus, he provides a cleansing, a complete cleansing by his blood for us on the cross. He deals with the guilt issue that drives our shame issue. He provides the cover we need and the healing we need for all of our weaknesses and our failures. And when shame pronounces us guilty and deficient, Jesus pronounces us guiltless because he died for us in our place. When we learn to trust Jesus as our righteousness, rather than trying to, to be and have our own righteousness, when we learn to trust Jesus as our provider for all that we need, for, for the acceptance we need, for the approval we need, for all that we need, when we come to learn to trust him for those things, what happens is the chain we forged that enslave us to the past falls off. The message of Mary's story is we can be freed from our past. And when we are, we're freed for his new future for us every single time. There came a point that Mary believed not only that God could do for her what she needed. There came a point when she believed and understood that in Christ God did. What happened to Mary can happen to you. Let me end with a word to believers today. I want you to hear me carefully. The best cure for your guilt is to go to the cross. The best cure for your guilt is to go to the cross. Now, there's such a thing as true guilt and false guilt. True guilt is when we have violated God's, God's best for us 
his word to us when we've done what is wrong. False guilt is when we imagine we have done that and we all wrestle with distinguishing between the two. If you violated the word, if you violated God's ways, then that would be true guilt. True guilt leads to true shame. The only way to really manage shame is to confront your guilt with the gospel of Jesus. Is to remind yourself again and again and again that his blood has cleansed you of that sin and cleansed you of that offense. You remind yourself again and again of how God dealt with your guilt, that your guilt is forgiven at the cross because of his shed blood, that in Christ, God has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west from himself. I want to warn you, be careful that you don't let shame have the last word. The voice of shame will tell you, even after you believe you've been forgiven of your sin, the voice of shame will tell you that you are your sin. Did you hear me? The voice of, of shame will tell you, you are your sin. Do you remember that time you lied and you caused such damage? You are a liar. Do you remember when you had that affair? You're an adulterer. Do you remember when you stole that money? You're a thief. You're an addict. Your voice, the voice of shame will tell you that you are your sin. The only cure for your shame is the same cure for your guilt. And that is to go again to the gospel and remember that your guilt is forgiven at the cross. And that because of the cross, by faith in Christ, you've been made whole. You've been made new. You are loved. You are forgiven. In Christ, every messy life is made a miracle of healing. Old is made new. And nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. There is never, 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 never a time because of the voice of shame. There is never, ever a time where we should not, should not come back again and again and again to the cross. The cross is the cure. The cross is what breaks the chain. The cross is what defeats the emotion of shame. There is a extraordinary, extraordinary thing that happens when finally, finally, finally you understand what it means to say, my sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west, from the God before whom all sin really matters. My sin at the end of the day before you doesn't matter. What matters most is what God thinks of me, what God does with me, what God does with my past. And when I come to understand because of the cross, what God has done with my sin is cast it away. What God has done with me is make me his child. When I understand 
who I am in Christ because of the cross and what Christ and what God in Christ has done with my sin. Suddenly, my guilt gets set aside and my shame starts to fall. And it is an extraordinary thing to be able when the memories come and say, you're a liar. You're an adulterer. You're a porn addict. You're a gossip. You hurt, you harm people. That's who you are. It's an extraordinary thing when you begin to understand this truth and you're able to say, I'm sorry. I have no idea who you're talking about. Because I've been to the cross and I've heard the Savior say, you're forgiven. You've been cleansed. You've been set free. You're mine. I have no idea who you're talking about. Because I am his. And he is mine. When that happens, the chains just I am defined by what God's done for me. Not by all the poor things I've done to me. Let's stand together. Lord God, uh, we thank you, we bless you in this place for the gift of the story of an unwanted, uncared for, unworthy woman made whole, made rich with love, set free, made yours. Father, we thank you that you do break chains, that you do defeat guilt, you do defeat sin. You do overcome shame. You call us and allow us to set apart our past, step into a new present with you. For that, we thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come to our response time, I want to invite our, our prayer partners to come and take their places. You know, this may be a breakthrough day for you. It may be a breakthrough moment for you. It may be uh, that this is the day when you're able to take that past event and finally lay it down. Claim the blood of Christ over that. And find your way 
the freedom. And I invite you to do that. We have folks who will be here to pray with you. If you want to come and pray, just do that here uh, on your own, or we will pray with you. If you've never given your life to Christ, the one who breaks chains, the one who forgives the past, the one who sets free, stands ready for all who will put their faith in him and in his death on Calvary. He gives a brand new life. Let's, let's begin. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.